Little children, yet a while, yet little while I am with you. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, so now I say to you, where am I, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you will love one another, even as I have loved you, that you will also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, Where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you shall follow afterward. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Back when I was a young pastor in Houston, Jim Moore was the pastor at St. Luke's. There in Houston, it was one of the largest Methodist churches in the world. It was a beautiful place. It was located in the neighborhood of River Oaks. River Oaks is one of the most lovely neighborhoods there in Houston. If you don't know where it's located, you can think Galleria. It's right there on Westheimer and Loop 610. I mean, it's a beautiful part of town. And it is a busy part of town. Westheimer is now six lanes. You got three lanes and Espinade three more. And they need another three. It is always packed and crazy. Well, Jim was telling about how one day he decided to go to lunch at a cafe not too far away and just be able to walk, avoid the traffic. And he came in, was about to be seated. And suddenly this lady stood up and she must have been about 6'4". And she had broad shoulders. He said she looked like a drill sergeant. And she looked right at him and said, You, watch my food. And he responded as any self-respecting man would. Yes, ma'am. She headed out the door and he thought, Where is she going? And he got to looking outside and what he saw was three small children. They'd obviously been swimming. They were in swimsuits. They had towels around their shoulder. And they were now in one of the espinades there on Westheimer, having made it halfway. And she saw these kids, and she walked out into the street like she knew what she was doing. She threw up her hands, and she stopped the surprised traffic on Westheimer. So, I mean, they stopped. She mo- Kids came on across. They made it to the other side. She motioned the traffic on and she got out of the way. She came back inside to sit down and finish her meal. And Jim said, why did you do that? She was surprised and looked at him and said, well, I saw these children who needed help. I'm a Christian. That means I'm responsible. When you see people who are in need... Do you feel responsible to help because you're a Christian? It's on the night of the Last Supper. We were reading how Jesus was there with his disciples. And he said to them, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you. It's that second part that really makes it tough. Jesus said, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you. 
All you have to do is go back and look at Jesus' life to see how did he love. Because it was with a radical, sacrificial, it was a difficult love. To love those who were different. To love the oppressed or the marginalized. To love the rich who were being mean. Whatever it might have been, I'm going to love those who are there in an amazing, graceful way. To say, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you. I sometimes think about what does that really mean for you and me to go out into love in the world the way that Christ has loved us. That's not always an easy thing. As I was reading this passage, though, and preparing this sermon, something hit me that I, I had never really seen before. I was reading it over and over again, and, and I want to come back and read you. If you read the 33rd verse and then skip all the way over the 33rd verse and then skip to the 36th, here's how it reads. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, so I now say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Now, obviously what Jesus is talking about is Jesus is about to die. You cannot follow me at the moment. He was about to die and he would ascend into heaven. But he said, you will follow me. The day is going to come when you're going to die. And yes, you will follow me to the kingdom of heaven. Now remember, John is writing this when John is now an old man. As an old man, John is writing and he is, he's looking back over his life and he's thinking of the times that he's had success and sorrow and, and joy and pain and he thinks about all these times that he has now lived and now it's been almost 50 years probably since this happened. And when you become an older man, he looks back at it all and he thinks about how on the night of the Last Supper Jesus talked about, he was going to die. He was going away. You can't follow me right now, but you will one day. And so talking about what it means to die, in the middle of that, John puts in the statement that Jesus had given them. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you. It's the radical call to love. And it can be difficult. But if we stop and look at that in the light of what it means to die, what does it mean in the light of eternity? Then it becomes easier probably to do. Because you think about how many things you get angry about. How many things do you worry about? How many things frustrate you? What things do you get jealous over? And yet if you looked at it in the light of eternity, if you're thinking about the fact that you're going to die, how different would you maybe treat these things? It was several years ago now, almost 20 years ago, I was asked to come and preach at OCU's baccalaureate service. You know, we're moving into the graduation season, and that's a fun time. 
when people come into the graduation time and everybody is um, getting together as families and celebrating all the hard work and you're moving on to your new dreams. And so I was asked to come and do the baccalaureate over there at the Angie Smith Chapel. I prepared hard on my sermon. I wanted to talk about dreaming dreams, letting God lead you, not being afraid to try and to fail and try again. I had worked hard on this exciting time for us to be able to come together and to celebrate. And when I had finally was getting ready that Saturday morning to go do it, I, I got a phone call at home, and it was from a member of our church. And they were telling me about another member of our church, Jim Harlow, and that he had cancer. They had just found out, and that he was going to be dying, and they needed to talk. Jim and Jane were wonderful people in this life of this church. Jim was the CEO of OG&E. He was so involved in the community and blessed our community in so many ways. He was 62 years old. He was very healthy, very active, full of life. He hadn't been feeling quite right, but not enough to put him to bed. He just didn't feel quite right. They kept looking and trying things. Finally, he went to Mayo Clinic and had all kinds of tests run. And what they found out was he had pancreatic cancer. And they told him, you've got four weeks to live. Jim would live three weeks and six days. And so that morning where I'd been preparing for all this excitement of dreams and and trying and and going out in life and the things you're going to experience, I went and I preached at this baccalaureate service with all these young people. And then I drove straight from there to go sit down with Jim and Jane and talk about dying and that promise of eternal life. You know, the juxtaposition of the experience of that day, dream these dreams and you're going to have some struggles and then being reminded you're going to die and you never know when. It had an impact on me now for more than 20 years. Because it makes me want to step back and think. What are the things I'm getting upset about? What are the things that are bothering me? What are the things that keep me up at night? What are the things that make me worry? If I knew I had four weeks to live, would I look at them differently? Jesus was saying to his disciples, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you. And he sandwiches that in between the statements of, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but one day you will. It's knowing that that helps us to be able to live the radical, sacrificial love that Christ calls us to for one another. That's what I want us to think about this morning as we continue on with this sermon series, Raising the Dead. For we have said that it is Christ who, yes, raises us so that we might know eternal life. But even more than that, He also raises us right now. So that those of us who may be struggling with worry and anxiety and fear, a sense of hopelessness, we can be raised from the dead now. I want to think about this. Three things that I want to say. First of all, You know that Rachel Remen is a friend of mine and she's one of my favorite authors. She is Jewish and she tells a wonderful story of how years ago it was on Yom Kippur that she went to the temple to go to worship. 
Yom Kippur is one of the most high and holy days in the Jewish year. It's the time when you come together for um, remembering that for atonement, you receive God's forgiveness, you are made at one with God, you go, it's a high and holy day. And so she had gone to worship and they were going through the service and it came time for the sermon and the rabbi came down to his wife and she was holding their one-year-old daughter. She was a little toddler and she was so cute and he picked her up and came up to the front to, to give his sermon. And when he got up front and he's holding his little toddler, look, toddler looking out at the congregation, this little toddler kind of smiled and is looking around, buries her head in daddy's arm. And Rachel said, you could just hear everybody going, ha, ah, ah. ha. You know, you, you just felt the love, everybody kind of melting. What a beautiful little girl. She's cuddled up with daddy and he starts to talk about Yom Kippur and the issue of God's forgiveness. And finally after a while, she gets tired of just kind of cuddling and she wants daddy to look at her. But daddy's focused on the congregation, so she starts slapping him upside the face. She's kind of beating on his cheek and people kind of start snickering and he just kind of tries to pull her hand down and he's continuing on. And so he's going on a little further and He's not paying attention to her, and she finally realizes this isn't going to work, so she grabs him by the nose and turns his head. She's going to get control of this situation. Well, of course, everybody laughs, and he gently pulls her arm down, and he continues on not to give up. She then curls around in front of him. She gets up right in front of his face, and she hugs his neck, and she's holding on tight now, and He's trying to look around her to see the congregation as he's talking. And now people are laughing. And he says, is there anything she could do you wouldn't forgive her? And about that moment, she reaches up and grabs his glasses and yanks them off his face. And now everybody's laughing and he waits for them to calm down. And finally he says, how old does someone have to get before we find it hard to forgive them? Do they need to be three? Is it 10? Is it 20? 35? How old does someone have to get before we forget that everyone is a child of God? If you and I are going to love one another as Christ has loved us, then it's going to be about forgiveness. For we know that it's Christ who came to forgive us the way that he would love Peter, the one who would deny even knowing him, forgiving him, the way he would even love Judas, the one who betrays him, the way he would love the Roman soldiers who ultimately nailed him to a cross. The life of Jesus, if you look at it, was one about the issue of God's grace, about forgiveness to the rich and to the poor, whoever he was encountering, he had come to bring this reconciliation with God. It was about forgiveness. And yet how hard it sometimes is for us to forgive. How old does somebody have to be before you forget they're a child of God? Before we find it hard to forgive them? If you and I look at the things that cause us resentment. If we look at the things that we hold on to, 
If we look at the things that we harbor and make us angry, and if we look at that in the light of eternity, if you were to think you had four weeks to live, how would you deal with those same things? I've told you before, one of my favorite books of all time is Tuesdays with Maury, written by Mitch Album, the great sports writer for the Detroit Free Press. Maury Schwartz was his professor back in college. Years had gone by, they had separated, and now they got back together, and it turned out that Maury had ALS. ALS, you know, is Lou Gehrig's disease. It's a really difficult disease. It starts in your feet and begins to move up your body. Your muscles begin to atrophy. You become paralyzed. Your mind is perfectly fine. Nothing's happening there. But you become entombed basically in your own body. It moves up until finally it hits your lungs and your heart and then you die. It's a difficult disease. And Maury had this and so Mitch started coming by every Tuesday for the two of them to be able to sit down and to visit with one another and talk about life. And one of those days that they were talking, Mitch asked Maury, what about forgiveness? What have you learned about forgiveness in your life? And Maury said, look over that bookshelf. You, you see the, the bust? There was a bronze. That's me 30 years ago. He said, my friend Norman did that took him a long time to sculpt it and then get made it into bronze. You know, Norm and I were very close friends. We used to travel to New York together. We'd go swimming together. Our wives were good friends. We would go and travel together. But then Norm and his wife moved to Chicago. He said, not too long after they moved to Chicago, Charlotte, Maury's wife, well, she had serious surgery. And he said, Norm and his wife never did call to check on her. And it really hurt our feelings. So much so that we decided we would drop that relationship. Well, in the end, Norm would call. He would apologize. He would ask. We would get see each other many different times through the years at events we were all a part of. He wanted to reconcile, but I, I wouldn't have it. My pride wouldn't let me. And then about a year ago, I heard that Norm had suddenly developed cancer and he had died. And then I thought, Mitch, I, I never had had the opportunity to accept his apology, to offer forgiveness. I thought of all the incredible memories we had missed making. I was so foolish. I was so foolish. When you think about the things that cause resentment, the things you're holding on to, the things that make you angry, I wonder if we looked at them in the light of eternity, if we looked at them in the time that we were knowing we were going to die, if we deal with them differently. Maybe it's why on the night of the Last Supper when Jesus was going to give this command to love one another as I have loved you, he would start and end it talking about one day you're going to follow me. One day you're going to die too. Secondly, 
I believe it's really more than just forgiveness, though. I believe to love as Christ has loved is really about redemption. It's about a new beginning. It's about you and I giving people the opportunity to be redeemed. To become the people God called them to be. To help them use their gifts to live fully. It's not just forgiveness. It's about redemption. Helping people to truly live fully as God has called us and created us to do. That's what was trying to happen as Jesus deals with all these different people. It didn't matter whether it's the woman at the well or Zacchaeus, the tax collector up in the tree. It doesn't matter who it is. There is forgiveness and then redemption. The opportunity to begin again to do something more in who you are. This past Friday night, I, I went to our petite theater downstairs here at the church, and I went to go see the opening night of Annie. What a great show. If you haven't seen it so far this weekend, there's four more shows next weekend. I highly recommend it. The kids and the adults, I mean, they were amazing. And the show had such a good message and a good feel. You remember the show of Annie. It all takes place in the early 1930s, and it's about an orphanage and people who are living in what they call Hoovervilles. Everybody's mad at Herbert Hoover because we now are in the midst of the Great Depression. And FDR gets elected, and he's going to create the New Deal. He's going to help pour money into building bridges and roads and buildings. But Herbert Hoover, they start right off by singing a song, Everybody's Mad at Herbert Hoover. He doesn't care, and we're poor and hungry, and living in these horrible situations. Another truth of the matter is, if you look at history, it was fascinating. Hoover gets elected in 1928, takes office in January of 29. Six months later, the stock market crashes. The worst threat of our time in, in history economically. Herbert Hoover did not cause the stock market to crash. There had been many things leading up to that moment that really brought about this economic crisis. But Herbert Hoover got blamed. He was Republican. The Democrats made sure Herbert Hoover took the blame. He was the scapegoat. Look what he did. Well, now, being a good Republican, he did believe in laissez-faire. That is, hands off. The markets will take care of themselves in a free market society. And that probably wasn't a good decision. There were so many people out of work, so many people losing everything and going hungry. We needed some help. And so he came off appearing uncaring, not wanting to help. He was very wealthy. And boy, the Democrats painted him as a really bad person. He wasn't a bad person. He was living his philosophy, and it probably was a mistake, though he didn't create the problem. Well, four years later, obviously he did get voted out and FDR would win and he would bring in the New Deal and America would start to turn and then we would find ourselves in World War II. Well, it was 13 years, 12 years later, FDR had already won three terms. He was now going to run for the fourth term and he wanted a new running mate and so he chose Harry Truman. And so Harry Truman came on to be his new running mate, vice presidential candidate. They would win. They'd be in office 88 days when FDR would die and suddenly Harry Truman became president. 
he hadn't been vice president. He hadn't been up to speed on all these things. And suddenly he was having to deal with the depression. He's trying to deal with World War II. It's coming to an end. There's all kinds of crises. And one of the first things he does, the Democratic president, Harry Truman, he calls up Herbert Hoover and said, would you come to the White House? The problem he wanted him to help deal with was there was about to be famine over in Europe. All that kind of war for so many years. People were going hungry. People were going to be starving to death. And he knew that Herbert Hoover, before he was president, back in World War I, he had led the famine relief to Belgium after World War I. That it was Herbert Hoover had gone around raising money and finding food and figuring out how to distribute it and literally had saved this country of Belgium. And so much in Europe... Well, Harry Truman saw this was about to be happening in Europe now, and so he calls him up to the White House. Hoover's very skeptical, but when he arrives, he comes in and sits down, and immediately Truman goes into, look, I know what you did back in World War I. We're having the crisis again. I think you need to head this famine relief project up. Hoover gets up and walks out of the room to another room to be alone and begins to sob. It was the first time in 13 years that he had been back in the White House. The first time in 13 years, anybody was asking him to help. He had been demonized and held up as a scapegoat for all this time. He finally composed himself and came back and sat down and Truman laid out the ideas and said, would you go work on this? And Hoover went away and then he came back and said, here's the plan. And and Truman said, go. And so he'd hop on a plane and he'd start flying all over the world in an army transport plane, more than 50,000 miles. It became known as the sacred cow, the plane. And he was visiting with heads of state and raising money and getting food and figuring out how to get it somewhere and then distribute it. And he did an amazing job. It was incredibly successful. He understood what to do and how to do it. He had begun a rehabilitation of his own image and who he was. He was getting to serve. So much so when they got through with that, the government was looking at what all had happened through these years and the New Deal. And Truman said, you know, we need to whittle the government down, all these different agencies. And so they got a a bipartisan group to say, let's look at the government. What should we whittle down and do this? And then he said, I'd like Herbert Hoover to head it up. Now the Democrats, Sam Rayburn, they screamed bloody murder. What are you talking about? Sit down, this is what I want. Herbert Hoover, he led it up. Came back with recommendations, they accepted two-thirds of them. They began to trim the government and they would save millions. Harry Truman noticed when he walked to the White House that the only spouse, the only wife who did not have a portrait hanging in the White House was Herbert Hoover's wife. He rectified that. There was a dam on the Colorado River that had been started under Herbert Hoover's tenure as president. It was known as Hoover Dam. But Harold Ickey, the interior secretary under FDR, said, no, 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 we're not going to name it after someone who calls such great problems. We're going to call it Boulder Dam. It was Harry Truman in 1947 who helped lead the charge and get it passed that we would forever name it Hoover Dam. Now, the fascinating thing is Harry Truman, the Democrat, was not good friends with Herbert Hoover, the Republican. 
They didn't really know each other before all this started going on. Harry Truman just knew someone who really had a gift that could be used to bless life. And it didn't matter about politics. Why not give someone the opportunity to serve and bless life and be the person that maybe God has called them to be? I want to read you what Herbert Hoover would write to Harry Truman. Yours has been a friendship which has reached deeper into my life than you know. I gave up a successful profession in 1914 to enter public service. I served through the First World War and after for a total of about 18 years. When the attack on Pearl Harbor came, I at once supported the president and offered to serve in any useful capacity. Because of my various experiences, I thought my services might again be useful. However, there was no response. When you came to the White House, within a month, you opened the door to me, to the only profession I know, public service. It's not just about forgiveness. It's about redemption. It's about seeing someone in need and believing you and I have a responsibility to do something to help because Jesus said, a new commandment I give you that you love one another as I have loved you. A love that provides the opportunity for a new beginning. Redemption. And so third, if you and I would live in that spirit of forgiveness and redemption, then you and I are going to help to create the very thing we all hunger for. And that's community. Everybody hungers to have somewhere in this world that you love and you feel loved. Everybody wants somewhere in the world that you feel like you belong. You're a part of something bigger than yourself. We want to love other people. We want to be loved by other people. We want community. And if you're going to have community, well, then you're going to have to wind up loving with a spirit of forgiveness and redemption. And that's probably easier to do if you remember that you're going to die. I think that's what Jesus was doing right here, was creating the very spirit of the early church. John would remember that now, 50 years later, writing all about this. The early church, the spirit that would draw people in, well, this seemed to be a place where you would be forgiven. It's a place where you were, I've got a new opportunity to begin again. It was a place of acceptance, God's unconditional grace. People wanted to come to the early church. When you live with the understanding that your time might be limited, maybe it puts things in a different perspective about what it means to love one another. For Maury Schwartz, his disease continued to progress. He got weaker and weaker, just as they knew that he would. And he finally got to the point that he could not take care of himself. No, he couldn't feed himself anymore. Somebody had to feed him. He couldn't get dressed by himself. Someone had to dress him. He couldn't bathe. He couldn't go to the bathroom by himself. No, people had to do everything for him. But his mind, it was all still just fine. 
And so it was, he was lying in bed and moving ever closer to death. And Mitch was still coming to see him every Tuesday and they would talk. And one of those Tuesdays, they got to talking about our society, our world. And as they got to talking about our world, they were lamenting the fact that we seem to live in a world that is so polarized that people are pulling against one another and where this person's against this one. And there seems to be such a division and struggle on so many issues. And as they were talking about it, I want to read you what a man who is growing ever closer to death would have for a perspective. The problem, Mitch, is that we don't believe we are as much alike as we are. Whites and blacks, Catholics and Protestants, gay and straight, men and women. If we saw each other as more alike, it might be very easy to join in one big human family in the world to care about the family the way that we care about our own. But believe me, when you're dying, you see it as true. We all have the same beginning, birth. We all have the same end, death. So how different can we be? Invest in the human family. Invest in people. Build a little community of those you love and those who love you. In the beginning of life, when we are infants, we need others to survive, right? At the end of life, when you get like me, you need others to survive, right? Maury's voice dropped to a whisper. But here's the secret. In between, we need others as well. Jesus said, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you. It's in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let each of us lift up our own silent prayer. Amen.